Drafting Archetypes is brought to you by Game Grid Lehigh. Game Grid Lehigh is an amazing place to buy and sell Magic the Gathering singles. Whether you're building a new cube or crafting your new constructed deck, Game Grid Lehigh is the place to do it. Got a draft coming up with some friends? Buy some seal product here and get it quick. So click the referral link in the description to help out the show. And don't forget to use the code DRAFTPRO10 to get 10% off on your next order at gglehigh.com. Hi everyone, this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes, and this week we are going to be discussing Black Green X Recursion in uh, Dominar United. For anyone who is a, a limited guru or above level patron of uh, Drafting Archetypes at patreon.com slash draftingarchetypes, the notes for this podcast are live and available there, so you can uh, pull those up and follow along if you want, and let's get into it. Often... I start by talking about how strong an archetype is in the format, according to 17 lands. And I did not do that here. I don't know that, like, the ways that 17 lands categorizes things, I don't think tells me a lot about how effective the particular strategy that I'm talking about here is. And just in general, I think that this is a set that is very high complexity, very high synergy, in a way that uh, minimizes the utility of a lot of kinds of data that I regularly use on 17 lands. That's not to say that there's not a lot of useful information there, but some of the stuff I'm going to rely more on my theory and experience than uh, the numbers there. That is to say, I'm not really making any claims about how much better or worse this archetype is than other archetypes. Uh, what I want to focus on is just when and how to exist in this space, what you're looking for and what you're trying to make the deck do, and why, and which cards this uses well. So basically there are a lot of cards in this format that put cards into your graveyard and or get cards out of your graveyard, generally in a way that is uh, profitable on those exchanges. And so the more you do those things, the further ahead uh, you get. So this deck is really about kind of grinding and generating card advantage. And it's important to understand that. And it's also important to understand that a lot of other decks aren't about that. And the fact that you are better at that than someone else doesn't matter unless that's what the game is about. And a lot of your opponents, most of them, should be trying to make the game about something else. So you need to be able to make sure that the game is about what you want it to be about. So your opponent is often going to be like trying to make the game about your inability to answer their flyers or their ability to go wide around you with tokens and play a pump spell to kill you or their ability to finish you off with big creatures and trample and combat tricks uh, if they're like red-green, and your inability to have enough uh, life total and or removal to stop them from killing you. And any amount of, oh, but I could have gotten five more creatures out of my graveyard and my opponent was never going to be able to keep, keep all of my creatures dead, doesn't matter if you're dead. 
So you don't want to succeed at making the game about the thing that you are about, which in this context is usually going to be like attrition and then lose anyway because your opponent out attritions you. So you want to make sure that like the that you're strong when you make the game about the thing that you want it to be about. But you also need to make sure that you have plans to stop your opponent from dictating the narrative of the game. One thing that this deck does naturally pretty well is gain life. Uh, the incidental game, gain, life gain on Urborg Repossession is a big part of that. But you also have some of it with like Gibbering Barricade and the, there are various other cards, Mossbeard Ancient and stuff. Uh, that can help you gain some life. Tolarian Geyser sometimes makes an appearance. That helps you a little bit against kind of generically everyone who's trying to go under you or around you or over you or through you or whatever. But you also, like, it's easy to get some random, like, bodies that gum up the ground that help make it harder for your opponent to go wide. Uh, you really want some reach creatures to stop your opponent from going over you. Some nice efficient removal, especially instant speed to, like answer big creatures and combat tricks so you need your deck to be kind of well-rounded and not like totally all in on just i mill myself i get stuff out of the graveyard rinse and repeat in particular uh one of the big things that i think you really need is just like one or two reach creatures there's a huge difference between having a little bit of something somewhere in your deck and not having it because this deck can use each of the cards that it has a lot. So, like, if you have one reach creature, it's not like your opponent just kills it and then you don't have a reach creature. Uh, if you have a reach creature, your opponent kills it, and then you get it back and play it again, and you're still set up to have a reach creature. I think that uh, good common reach creatures that you're looking for are Magnagoth Sentry and Miro's Outrider. You usually want to make sure that you have, like, a couple of those... I'm at the point now where if I didn't have either of those, I might actually consider playing a Snare Spinner, the two-mana 1-3 reach spider that gets two extra power when it blocks a flyer. I just think, like, a creature that you can get back that can trade with flyers uh, to cut off that angle from your opponent is important. This deck, this archetype, really revolves around Urborg Repossession for me. Urborg Repossession is probably the, like, second highest black common in my pick order i take extinguish and then repossession and i want to have a lot of uh repossessions there are a lot of cards historically that are very very good at generating card advantage by returning creatures from your graveyard to your hand like it doesn't cost a lot of additional mana in general to return additional things from your graveyard to your hand and the limiting factor on those cards is less, are they good at doing that? And more, are you good at generating a game where that's actually helpful? Uh, because a lot of opponents aren't necessarily putting a lot of effort into getting your creatures into your graveyard for you, especially if it's obvious that your deck wants them there. And so it's easy for Urborg Repossession to just not do anything if like your opponent's just casting flying creatures or making tokens and then planning to play a charge or something and so it's important for you to have things that make sure that you have creatures in your graveyard um there are a lot of ways to do that but like if you're going to play more than one repossession you really want to make sure that you have 
things that make sure that your repossessions are alive. Some examples of good ways to do that are like Benelish Sleeper that you can kick. That's the 3-1 that makes both players sacrifice a creature if you kicked it. So you can just play that, make your opponent sacrifice a creature, you sacrifice it or something else, and then it's a creature that you can repossession. Or Eerie Soul Tender is really, really, really good for this because the mill three and soul tender plus repossession does a nice thing where soul tender is very likely to mill a land sometimes it mills a land of a color that you need and then if you kick repossession you can return a creature and a permanent and that includes the lands so that can kind of like boost up your access to colors or mana if you're just like looking to like it's it's nice to have the ability to draw land when you want to, basically, and Soul Tender is a good way to make that happen. Another good way to make that happen is with Fleur First Vinewall, um, especially if you have ways to sacrifice or just chump block with that, then if what you're looking for is more lands, it's very easy to repossession it back and play it again. Uh, Shadow Prophecy, the instant that looks at cards equal to domain, you keep two of them in your hand and put the rest in your graveyard is another good way to enable your graveyard for uh, repossession. You can also kick the uh, uncommon that mills you for four if you kick it. A- anything that you know makes your own creatures end up in your graveyard, Jibbering Barricade is another way to do that. You want some reasonable amount of that stuff in total to make sure that your repossessions are on when your opponent's not trying to kill your creatures. Eerie Soul Tender is very, very good in this archetype because it enables your repossessions, but also the more of them you have, the better they get because them milling each other is good. And if you have multiples of them, they start enabling Writhing Necromass, which is the uh, seven mana, five, five death touch creature that costs less for each creature in your, each creature in your graveyard. And that ends up being really good in this deck because all of your recursion stuff, especially using Eerie Soul Tender, is very mana intensive. So having a big high impact creature that you can play for very little mana helps you not fall too far behind while you're spending mana uh, getting these cards out of your graveyard. Speaking of this concept of a high impact creature, I think that's the most important thing to understand about what's going on here is your deck is about consistently having access to your best creatures. And whatever your best creature is, is the thing that you are most commonly casting again and trying to keep in play. And so your deck very much is directly related to the strength of your best creature. So if you have some kind of really, really strong bomb, like, for example, I had this once with Shieldred, and then I could just play Shieldred, and because I had a lot of ways to get Shieldred back, I could... Uh, attack and if my opponent wanted to like block it with view creatures and trade it's like great you've dealt with my children you're probably really happy about that except it's back and the ability to be really aggressive with children children is really really strong because it's already uh putting so much pressure on your opponent with in case for people who don't know this mythic rare it's uh two and two black for a four or five death touch Whenever your opponent draws a card, they lose two life. Whenever you draw a card, you gain two life. So the two life per turn that they're losing puts their life total under a lot of pressure. And then if you can also safely attack with your four or five death touch for four, which isn't very hard, then your opponent ends up just like losing life way, way, way too quickly. So if you have some kind of... Shieldred's one of the best cards in the set, like top three. If you have such a bomb, then drafting a lot of ways to make sure that you continue to have that bomb in play 
it's going to really, really magnify the strength of that bomb. And on the other hand, if you don't have something like that, and all you're doing is getting back a Magnagoth sentry or something, um, four, four, reach for four, then it might be that you end up just like chumping or trading or something with that and kind of wheel spinning and falling behind your opponent doing something more powerful. So you really, really want to pay attention to making sure that like anytime there is a creature that you have access to that is more impactful than your most impactful creature, there's a very good chance that you want to take that card that elevates the most important or the like highest impact thing that you're doing one level higher. Yeah, at common, like uh, Mira's Outrider and Writhing Necromast are about as high impact as you can get. At uncommon, you're looking at cards like Tatiova and Mossbeard Ancient and Bone Rattle, the 4 4 for 6 that gets something back from your graveyard, is weird here, where it's very, very impactful if it's getting something else very, very impactful back. Morrow is another one uh, that can be very high impact. It'll usually be an 8 8 or a 10 10, Territorial Morrow. But having no keywords, it can end up not lining up well against you know an opponent with like if your opponent has a death touch creature it's not that big of a deal you can trade and get it back but if your opponent's like very wide you might have trouble like actually getting through with it um and of course wing mantle chaplain is the actual best uncommon and best thing that you can have going on in this deck when you have wing mantle chaplain you do want to be in this kind of space this is where this archetype has a lot of overlap with uh, my discussion of the Defenders deck in the last episode. But this is more about when you don't have Chaplain, which puts you in easy mode, um, what else you can do. A wide range of high-impact rare and mythic rare cards exist. You're obviously, like, it's not just about, like, what's the win rate of this card, but how impactful it is, which is to say that, like, the more expensive, higher-impact cards are more relevantly advantageous for this archetype than, you know, like a really good efficient two drop. I touched briefly on Fleur for Spinewall um, as like nice to be able to like chump block with and then get back uh, because it, you know, draws a card, but it doesn't merely draw a card. It draws a specific predictable kind of card, which means that uh, it's particularly good to be able to like rebuy because you know what it's going to give you, and you can go to that if that's what you want. Also, it's worth noting that this deck often will have some very expensive cards, but also play a lot of Flurfers Fine Walls, and it's not terribly unusual to play like 15 or 16 lands because your Flurfers Fine Wall will help you find more lands. You want to make sure Flurifer's Fine Wall as mana fixing is interesting in that it is very, very good at it, but only if you have enough of enough sources of the color that you're looking for. Like it doesn't actually search your library for a missing color. So if you have one land that taps for blue mana, it's not going to find it very well. But if you have, you know, three or four, it's very good at digging you to your first like 
blue or whatever. When you're trimming lands for Fuller First Vine Walls, you have to be very careful about not like counting your Fleur First Vine Wall as a blue source while playing only one blue land, but you can kind of count it as a source for anything that you have like four or five lands to tap for. And that often leads to a spot where if your mana base is very Fluriferous Vinewall heavy, you want to kind of balance your colored sources more than you otherwise would. Um, so you might kind of cheat on like not playing as many lands of your secondary color so that you can play additional lands of your tertiary color, but count on Vinewall usually finding your second secondary color if you're missing it. Removal. You want some of it. Instant speed is better than not instant speed, as always. Uh, hard removal, like removal that can kill anything, is nice. Like, efficient is kind of less important, the same way that, like, efficient is less important in creatures. It's also less efficient in removal. You really just need it to do whatever you need it to do. That said, you know, if your whole deck is too clunky, this is definitely a format where you can get run over. So you do also want some cheap removal to help kind of stop your opponent from doing that, turn the corner. I want to highlight Destroy Evil in particular. Uh, this is a card that it's really easy to sleep on. It looks like it might be a sideboard card. It's good in some form. It's the kind of card that's good in some formats and bad in others. I and a lot of other people kind of started by not really seeing it as a great card or maybe being skeptical about playing a lot of copies of it. I've uh, It has very, very good stats on 17 lands, like better than Lightning Strike good. And I've started to try playing with it and it has radically exceeded my expectations. There are a lot of big creatures. The big creatures are very important. There are also a lot of pump spells, like the red-green aggro deck usually plays like a lot of tricks. And um, even if they have a small creature, once they play a trick on it, then destroy evil kills it and you get a two for one. And in addition to that, there are very, very, very few ways to exile creatures in this set, except with enchantments and there are a bunch of different oblivion ring type cards that exile your creatures and exiling your creatures is the thing that shuts down your ability to make sure that they're in play when you're recurring them so having destroy evil to answer the oblivion ring type effects lets you make sure that your plan of always have your best creature stays online while also giving you an efficient removal spell for big creatures Really highly recommend prioritizing and playing multiple Destroy Evils uh, in this archetype, but also most white decks. Like, I think that Destroy Evil is roughly as good as Extinguish the Light, and those two are the best common removal spells. So, it's kind of been implied in all of my discussion about cards that are not black or green and how mana works. This deck is very, very rarely straight black-green. You should expect to splash, maybe even splash every color. You want to be careful to avoid cards that cost two of the same color where possible. Make an exception, usually for one color, usually black for like Extinguish the Light, maybe uh, Choke Miasma or something. You can also, you can do that and play expensive cards that cost green green, like Mossbeard Ancient and Tatiova counts because it's good late. But you want to be really, really careful about uh, even good cards that cost two colored mana of the same 
color that's not necessarily one of your primary colors. Like Talus Lookout is a really, really good card for this deck. It can kind of fill the role of the Reach creatures. And if it's like dying and coming back and finding your other stuff, that's all very strong. But Blue Blue can be pretty hard to pull off in this deck. So you want to be cautious about including cards like that. Really pay attention to what your mana is going to look like, how many, what kind of fixing you have, how many non-basics you have, and like whether you can realistically play it without stretching your mana too far before taking and trying to play a card like that. Another off-color card that I want to call special attention to is Micromancer. The three and a blue, three, three, that can search your library for a one mana um, instant or sorcery and put it into your hand. Just finding Urborg Repossession is awesome because uh, it means that when your Micromancer trades off, you can get it and something back and then get another thing, which could be another repossession, and you can just kind of keep that going. Or it's also easy to build uh, a larger kind of suite of options for your Micromancer, especially if you're playing every color. Uh, you want to have, you know, multiple repossessions ideally for your Micromancer to find, but then it's also good to have some one-mana removal. There are a lot of options here. Tail Swipe, Cut Down, Runic Shot, Bone Splinters, Flowstone, Infusion, Rona's Vortex. If you're not sure what any of those are offhand, don't worry about it. The point is they're things that answer your opponent's creatures in one way or another and cost a single mana. So you have a ton of options for cards that Micromancer can find that give you a, like, removal spell toolbox in addition to kind of this like raw grindy card advantage engine from taking uh, Urborg Repossession. So really strong card to include. Uh, you can have a nice little toolbox package there. The big thing that I've come to realize, I've drafted this archetype a lot. I've had some versions of it that were very good, some versions of it that were very bad. Um, a lot of that I think does come down to just, well, what was my best creature? Because the thing that the deck does is play that best creature. And so I, I have certainly lost to, oh, I didn't have a busted uncommon or rare and none of this stuff mattered. I think this archetype is strong, but it certainly has fail states. And there are a lot of different pieces that have to come together in the right way. And you kind of end up on this path before you know that you're going to check all those boxes and have all the pieces come together. And when I was like drafting this and thinking about it, I realized that what it really reminds me of is uh, drafting the Stream of Thought control deck that I drafted in Modern Horizons 1. This was a deck that uh, was usually close to creatureless, usually five colors, and based on uh, recurring, um, like running through my deck multiple times and having answers to everything. And while I was drafting it, there were always all of these different boxes that I was trying to check. Like, does my mana work? Do I have answers to, like, a huge creature? Do I have answers to people going wide? It, it was always really fun for me to, like, be evaluating every card, both in the context of, like, well, how strong is this card? And also, like, what does my deck need right now? Does this fill a hole? Or do I have, like, enough of that and I can prioritize, like, a weaker card that does a thing that, like, the rest of my deck isn't doing it? And really thinking of your whole deck as a cohesive package. And I get very, very similar vibes in this archetype, where I have this kind of, like, a checklist of, like, do I have a good creature? Do I have a way to get it back? Do I have enough enablers for all of my recursion? 
Do I have removal? Do I have a reach creature or a good flyer? Does my mana work? In addition to all of the normal, you know, do I have a curve type questions that you should always be asking. I think you really need to focus on thinking about your deck holistically and thinking about both its plan and what its fail state's going to be and anticipating that and seeing if you can find a thing to address that and to like plug that hole. Complicated deck to draft, uh, very, very fun in my opinion and to my taste, both to draft and play games with. You end up with a lot of options, a lot of ways to spend your mana. I've had frustrations in this format with a lot of my attempts to draft aggro decks where I felt like I was really at the mercy of um, not having a lot of card selection and needing to get like my creatures and tricks in the right combination and in the right order and um this archetype feels a little bit less dependent on the order of your deck and more important on your ability to get uh all of the pieces in your deck and kind of puts more of the emphasis i guess on the draft portion in a way that i personally enjoy so if all of that sounds like an appealing puzzle to you. Uh, I recommend giving this archetype a shot. That's that's what I have to say about it. Uh, it's time to turn this over to Twitch chat for questions, if you have any questions about this archetype. If I haven't addressed them, please um, bring them up in chat, regardless of whether you've already asked. Um, ask again so that I know that it's still outstanding. Um, while I'm waiting for those questions, I want to thank my... First new patron uh, in a while since we started doing this again regularly. Uh, Matt, thanks for the support. Anyone else who's interested in uh, joining the Patreon, potentially supporting the podcast, getting perks and all that, check out patreon.com slash draftingarchetypes. Really appreciate any support. I'm back to doing content full-time, so it's uh, really important to me. All right, first question. Which, if any, non-bomb cards are sending me toward this archetype early in the draft? Anytime I'm in black broadly, I think that I'm likely to be trying to get into this space. So, and I, I, I take Urborg Repossession pretty highly. So Urborg Repossession itself is likely to put me in this direction, but even an Extinguished Light or a Gibbering Barricade or something is also going to put me in this direction. So I was thinking about this format a little bit, just in general, and about how a lot of the people that I follow on Twitter always seem to tweet decks that look pretty similar. And I think that a lot of my decks also look pretty similar to each other. And I think that this format, I was thinking of it as kind of functioning like a personality test or something. Because all of the card evaluations are so contextual, it's less this card is better than this card and more this card is better in this archetype than this card. I think it really leads to kind of uh, self-reinforcing spirals and uh, really exacerbating the problem of magic being about finding a local maxima i think it's really easy for people to find, like just get into a rut in this format basically where they're like oh this card is performing well so i'm gonna take it highly but it only performs well in this particular deck and so because i'm taking this card highly i'm going to like take it more highly than other people because it's pretty mediocre if you're not regularly in this deck and then the fact that i have it is going to pull me into always being in this place again 
So for a lot of people that might be like, I take Teleron Terror very highly, and then whenever I have it, I start taking all of the like blue and red spell stuff that enables it or whatever. So for me, it takes very, very little to get me into this archetype, because this is kind of just like the spot that I've found myself in, and a lot of my pick order is about understanding which cards are good here and why and how to support that where I've kind of struggled a little bit with like figuring out which the which cards I'm supposed to be taking first to get into the aggressive decks or something like that. There might be other people who are like into the like red green combo space who are going to take like the double strike uncommon trick or Gaia's might highly and take that as a signal whereas I'm not going to take either of those unless I'm already in that deck and I'm not gonna already be in that deck because none of the like on roads to that deck really jump stand out to me while there are some cards that are just so clearly powerful in a certain archetype that they strongly signal to me oh draft this i think like left to choosing among commons it's really just going to be about what a person is kind of drawn to and i have been discussing the stuff that I'm most naturally drawn to because it's the stuff that I have the best understanding and most experience with. Best understanding of and most experience with. Any red cards you seem more likely to include? Mira's Outrider is the big one that's going to get me to include red because I'm really looking for the uh, reach creature and the value on casting that means that anytime it trades off I get to hit my opponent again and then that gives me a way to like know that I have a real way to end the game. I would also be reasonably happy to play like Flowstone Infusion and Lightning Strike, but those are often taken more highly than I want to take them because I'm usually not playing that much red mana because it's really just like Outrider, which is a five mana single pip card that I'm looking to play after I already have my other colors of mana lined up. So red is usually my lightest color, but there are red cards that I'm happy to include. Also, the uh, the red card that does damage based on cards in hand and uh, kicks for blue to draw a card um, is another good one to uh, splash. And sometimes if I have good sack outlets, I'll include the threat that you can kick to, sacrifice to be its own sack outlet. What would you estimate the ratio of green-black versus green-black X versus green-black XY versus five color is the best seat available? I think that it's very, very rare that you're supposed to be straight green-black. Uh, I don't differentiate a lot between like three, four, and five colors once I'm green-black. Uh, I would say I tend to try to gravitate toward four color. The fifth is often a bit taxing on my mana, but it's like worth it usually specifically because of Outrider sometimes. You just need to be very careful about making sure that you're only doing it when you're actually getting duels in good, like reasonably easily. Three versus like three and one splash or or two and one splash or three and one splash or two and a like the the four the three versus four color feels very similar to me as long as you're careful to like keep the splashes light uh can defender be part of this archetype yes absolutely i'm usually playing floor first fine wall and gibbering barricade anyway uh so if i have wing mantle chaplain i'll include it and the tutors for it and my deck will be much, 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 much better than if I don't have that. Uh, if I don't have Wingmantle Chaplain, I don't really like playing defenders outside of Florpher's Vinewall and Jibbering Barricade. Though I will note that if you're slightly spell heavy, 
the O5 that loots is pretty nice. Specifically, I like discarding your Esol Tender to it because sometimes you go through your library so much that the mill three is kind of dangerous, especially like if you're worried about it milling specific cards that you really want to be able to draw that aren't creatures. Um, so being able to just discard it to get the graveyard ability without needing to cast it is sometimes something that you're looking for, and the O5 mill wall can help there. Next up, do you ever have issues with self-mill in long games with this deck? And if so, how do you play around that? Yes, I have won a good number of games in this format with zero to three cards left in my deck. Most of the time, the way that I deal with it is by prioritizing high impact stuff, I can get to the point where once I have access to every card in my deck, I can end the game very, very quickly. But it is possible to lose to milling out if you have too much of this stuff. It has been a concern. Sometimes I have to not cast Shadow Prophecy because uh, I don't have enough cards left in my library or whatever. I don't think I've been at the point where I've played extra cards to deal with it, but I could see doing that at some point if I had too many Shadow Prophecies and Eury Soul Tenders or something, and they seemed very good in my deck. Uh, next up, thinking about how this deck draws or takes cards out of your deck, and your deck could go to a really low number, how important is the deck manipulation and tracking your deck? Pretty important. I played some games yesterday where I had a lot of Fluriferous Vine Walls and re was recurring them. And at one point I put a Moss Beard Ancient on the bottom of my deck. My opponent Rona's Vortex, a Moss Beard Ancient to the bottom of my deck. So I knew exactly where it was and I really wanted to draw it again. So I started like aggressively casting and recurring Fluriferous Vine Walls to filter cards under the uh, Moss Beard Ancient to draw back through my entire deck to get the Moss Beard Ancient again. Um, and that actually worked. I did cast the Moss Beard Ancient again uh, not very many turns later, uh, especially if you're blue enough that you're playing Impulse. Um, that kind of stuff can come up as to like, how much it comes up. It really depends on uh, how many like Impulses and uh, Flora for Spine Walls you're playing and whether you're paying attention to that stuff, but uh, it, it is real. How have your games been in this archetype against white token decks? Can they go wide to get around your blockers? Yeah. They can go wide to get around your blockers. Um, the wall package, uh, like Fleur First Vine Wall, is not a good blocker, but it is actually pretty nice against um, like the 2-2 that makes a 1-1 Cavalier, because um, you can block the 1-1 pretty easily. Of course, they can like enlist uh, in that spot, but um, if you have uh, like a 2-4, like Gibbering Barricade, then um, you've kind of handled both of those and it just gets harder for one ones to get around you if you have some floor first fine walls and then the uh the shield wall sentinel the um one three that finds another wall once you start like getting those in play it gets harder and harder for the like token deck to get around you if you don't have the wall package you know you the you want to make sure that you're getting random bodies into play is kind of the best thing that you can do about dealing with the token decks. So like Phyrexian Ragers, um, it's really good if it's a two toughness body rather than a one toughness body, but it's you know also okay to trade one toughness bodies here and get them back. The incidental life gain is really important. Having a, hissing, having a choking miasma is something that I'm pretty happy with in these decks, even though that card doesn't have great stats. 
mostly like i think those decks usually need to get some early damage in or it's hard for them to go wide enough that like a single charge kills you so if you can prioritize you know getting some good early blockers again barricade goes a long way there or some token makers of your own like it's okay to play you know warhorse or something can help with that i mean i i mentioned it's definitely possible to lose to any of the different ways that people have of uh, attacking in this format. Uh, going wide is something to watch out for. But uh, there are tools, especially with just making sure that you have some of those, like, you know, if you spend turn three playing a Phyrexian Rager instead of a Shadow Prophecy, you're way more likely to not, you know, get run over by a token deck. How highly do you value Shadow Prophecy in this deck? I saw yesterday you were playing three copies, which seemed like a lot more straight card draw than is common in recent limited formats. I like Shadow Prophecy, uh, especially if you're a lot of colors. It can really help with fixing your mana, um, especially if you have, like, really good bombs, because it sees so many cards, it can help find them. Uh, good for enabling repossession, good for you know free milling eerie soul tenders and it also pairs well if you're playing a card like essence scatter or something you know where you have a bit of a like instant speed game plan if i have essence scatter in my deck i prefer uh shadow prophecy to um the blue the divination with kicker faxian something so that i can uh hold up essence scatter and then play the card draw you want to make sure that you have some ways to gain life and it's it's certainly like you don't want too much card draw if your deck doesn't naturally give you time to play it well you need to make sure that it fits coherently into what you're doing but it's a strong card how highly are you prioritizing lands for this archetype during draft uh i mean very highly like if you're planning to play a lot of colors you need to prioritize lands notably i'm taking flora first vine walls over duels most of the time but basically like i mentioned that a uh, checklist of things I want to make sure that, like base, like that my bases are covered, and there's so having functional mana is part of that checklist, and so there's not like a static answer to well, do you take a dual land or do you take Magnagoth Sentry? It's like well, if my mana is pretty good and I don't have a reach creature, I'll take Magnagoth Sentry. If I already have two Outriders but my mana is a little bit dicey, I'll take the land. And you should not draft in a way where you know you always take land over x or whatever how highly do you value dual lands slash how splashy do you get do you end up five colors frequently because of the domain so i often end up with some way to use four or five colors often it's like well there's this you know like i can kick the like red thing that does damage and kicks to draw a card or i can kick a tolerian geyser but I don't need the mana for that kicker color, and I have like one or two duels of that type. The how highly do you value them, and like how much do you splash, I think is something that you want to kind of get a read on the table about. Like some tables, the lands go really highly, and you need to like recognize that and be more conservative. And some tables, the lands go late, and uh, you don't need to spend high picks on them, and you'll have plenty, and you can prioritize domain stuff and splash more. I think that it doesn't structurally matter to me that much, like, whether I have a bunch of lands and I'm splashing or not. It's just about 
you know, if the table's prioritizing lands, then they're probably, they're more likely to pass you the other non-lands that you need to accomplish your goals without splashing. Whereas if they're prioritizing spells and giving you lands, then you might need to like look harder to find the spells that you need, but the lands let you take them when they're in other colors. So I would say it goes back to just like making sure that you have a plan and making sure that you have all your bases covered and kind of paying attention to that checklist about stuff that you need to make sure that your deck has covered. And uh, you can be pretty flexible about where you're at with your relationship with colors in that draft based on the texture of the table. Is there an ideal creature count to aim for in this kind of deck? Kind of radically no. There are some builds of it that want to be really, really creature dense, specifically likely because you're trying to use Rising Riley Necromass or something, but you can also have like a lot of spells and things that care about spells. Um, like I've had some builds where like Wrath or Vohar, whatever the like blue black looter guy is, are good. Again, it's like, well, do you mostly like is your card advantage uh divination type cards or is it Phyrexian Rager type cards? And are you dealing with flyers with Extinguish the Light or with uh Magnagoth Sentry? And you can kind of go either way and it doesn't necessarily matter all that much um, which one you're doing. So I would say no. No, there's not an ideal creature count. Are there secondary archetypes in Dominaria United that complement this strategy aside from bombs and defenders? Um, is there a strategy that's a good uh, complement or something to veer off? So yes, there are a lot like, I think that this can kind of pair with, like, the black-red, like, kind of wide, kind of sacrifice stuff. It can uh, pair with, like, like, I've had some, like, token-heavy versions of this where I'm making good use of, like, the um, Scout the Wilderness or whatever, the green thing that searches for land and kicks to get to 1-1 one, one white creatures. And then sometimes I'm just sacrificing those tokens to Jibbering Barricade or they're helping me block. But sometimes maybe I would have like Zar or Wrath or some kind of like legend that's using those tokens well. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that there are even like dedicated Gaia's Might type plans that could be incorporated into this. And I mentioned like, you know, sometimes you're in like a rising rising necromass package, sometimes you're not. Like the whole self-mill thing is itself kind of a secondary archetype that is sometimes in this and sometimes not. Good matchups and bad matchups for this archetype. I think the best matchup is like other like mid-range decks that are weaker than you. Um and the bad matchups are like aggro decks that draw really well. The worst matchup, I guess, is like uh, other mid-range decks that have way better bombs than you do. Um, I don't know. I don't know that I think that the format has felt to me like it comes down really well to like good and bad matchups more than like good and bad draws. But that's because I still kind of feel at the moment like... So many of the aggro decks feel so much at the mercy of like 
the draws. What recursion do you look for besides Urborg Repossession? Eerie Soul Tender, uh, the 4-4 four, four, uh, Bone Rattle, Uncommon, the 2-3 Lifelink that kicks your turn creature, the Missionary. Those ones are all really, really, really good. Uh, the Uncommon's, of course, better than Soul Tender. The Uncommon Saga that has, like, Raised Dead, uh, the, the three-mana Black Saga, Braid's Fright Frightful Return is, you know, okay. I think it's, like, worse than processing, and so I often end up not playing it, but it has it does some cute stuff where, like, it's not very hard to have a creature you want to sacrifice or whatever, and drawing another card off of it's nice. It's just, I think it's a little bit weaker than processing overall. But worth noting that, um, sorry, not processing, Urborg Repossession. Worth noting that Urborg Repossession plays really well with Sagas in general, since it can get them back. I think that's most of the other recursion that I play. I, I guess, you know, uh, if things go really well, the mythic four mana angel that lets you play things from your graveyard is probably pretty good. Should you build a 45 to 50 card deck instead uh, when self-milling? Most of the time, no. You should just have high enough impact cards that you can win when you get them back and cast them the first time. Green Black Domain Recursion, the ideal 41 card deck. 41 in particular is pretty unlikely. Like, if I'm trying to play more cards, I don't know why I would play exactly one more card. How much tap land is considered too much for this deck? My most problem, common problem with this has been getting run over by an aggro deck. So, I don't have a number of tap lands that I think are too many. I mostly, if I'm playing a lot of colors, just try to have a lot of them. And I would rather deal with the fact that I have uh, tapped lands by prioritizing uh, cheap removal rather than by, like, cutting tap lands. So, I, I don't really have a thought on what the most is. Um, I've been pretty happy playing whatever I can get, basically always. How many tap lands is too many? If you have seven to eight tap lands, do you consider going up a land? No, I very much would not increase my number of lands because of having tap lands. If anything, I would decrease my number of lands because I had my colors covered better. I understand where you're getting at in terms of like, but you need this many untapped lands so that you can play an untapped land when you want to. But I think the version of that that's more real is getting to a point where you take the scry, uh, the grotto, over a tap land during the draft. Another question about, do you think this deck needs 18 lands instead of 17? Because your deck tends to have a lot of expensive cards. My experience has been that my deck has a lot of card advantage and things that find lands and... I felt like I can never play as few lands as I want uh, to make my colors work and make sure I hit my first few. I'm way more likely to think about going to 16 lands than 18 in these decks. All right, I kind of like this question. It's a little bit off topic. Are there any steps you can recommend to not always drafting similar decks in this format? I mentioned that this format really leads to uh, getting into, you know, kind of a local maxima or a rut where you figure out how to draft a thing and then just keep drafting it. Um, so is there anything that I can recommend to avoid that? Uh, I think the best thing is like track your stats, track your drafts, look at what your most drafted cards are and look at your like least drafted cards and um, pay attention to cards that have high win rates that you don't play very much. Also pay attention to content creators and look for 
people who draft decks that are very different than what you draft and try to figure out like watch their drafts figure out what they're taking that puts them in that direction um figure out which cards win a lot and try just like you know if you see a card that wins a lot that you don't usually play in a pack take it and see where it goes and just you know try to find ways to put yourself into a different space than you usually are in your drafts another slightly off topic unrelated to this episode in particular what are some general tips to more consistency with your draft decks this is from a new player i think the big ones are uh in this format try to make sure that you have like at least eight lands that tap for anything that you would consider a primary color and try to make sure that you have a reasonable curve i understand that without uh the the idea of a reasonable curve might not be self-evident i would say try to make sure that you have at least six as a bare as a bare minimum cards that cost less than three mana make sure that you don't have cards that cost two mana of the same like two pips of the same color of mana like something that costs blue blue for example unless you have let's say seven ways to get mana of that color unless it's very very expensive and very very strong uh, these are rough guidelines there will be times when you want to break any guideline um generally play 17 lands how many is too many for first vinyls i played five should I cut one land for every two vine walls? I I have not found too many Fleur First Vine Walls. Five is around where I would start to wonder about it and where I uh, would consider trimming them depending on how well I'm using them. Like if I have wall payoffs or gibbering barricade to sacrifice them or even warhost's frenzy at that point uh can be relevant to just like block with a bunch of them and kill attackers and draw cards but if you're not doing anything with them i would consider trimming some at that point um because you're not going to be able to cut enough lands to avoid flooding again depending on how well you use mana but you need to make sure that you both the thing that I mentioned about how Flare First Vine Wall like, doesn't really count as fixing if you're looking for a color that you have only like one land that taps for that color. So you need to make sure that you have enough green to cast your Vine Walls and like, you know, three or four lands that tap for whatever color you're trying to find with them. It's hard to go to like 13 or 14 lands because of Vine Walls, but it's pretty realistic to go to like 15 lands and play a bunch of Vine Walls. But at that point, it's like, well is the fifth vine wall better than being like 15 lands and four vine walls? I'm not I'm not sure. I haven't had the privilege of playing with five vine walls yet to be sure. Are there cases where you play more than 40 cards? Uh if you are going to have access to more than 40 cards in a game. So if you are going to uh draw every card in your deck or otherwise see every card in your deck, then it is defensible to play more than 40. Seeing every card in your deck is rarely a good enough reason to play more than 40. It would only be if you're going to see every card in your deck and there's some kind of like card that's contributing something unique and valuable that you wouldn't be able to play if you only had 40. And often there's something else that you can and should cut instead. More likely if you are milling so much that you plan to mill your entire deck. 
Are there signals to watch out for to avoid green-black? The problem here is that I don't know how you would find them in time. I would like to learn how to tell when it's not going to work, but I don't know yet. Because you need all these different things, and it's easy to kind of like start going through the list and taking things that are covering some of your bases and feeling like it's going reasonably well. And then halfway through the draft, you start to panic about like, oh, wait, my deck has this problem. And then you never solve that problem and then your deck's bad. Like an easy way for that to happen is if you just start out with like some good removal and recursion and card advantage and you never find a creature that matters. And I don't know how to make sure that that never happens with these with decks like this that have to have all this different stuff. I feel like sometimes you just have to go along for the ride and hope it comes together and maybe get better at like finding more ways to make do like oh kind of like how i was mentioning i haven't personally played snare spinner but now that i've lost because i didn't have a magnagoth sentry or outrider maybe at some point i will take and play snare spinner so th th there's some amount of that some amount of like learning where you can take something that you otherwise wouldn't to solve a problem with your deck. But that doesn't tell you when to not draft it. That just tells you how to deal with like, oh, whoops, maybe I shouldn't have been doing this and I am anyway. But I kind of think that's more important. I, I think that like it really is hard to get a read on, oh, I shouldn't be here in time. And it's more important to know how to handle I shouldn't be here, but I am. So I, th I think that's where I would focus. Do you ever play Shelladred's Restoration or is it too expensive? I have never played it. It reads to me as too expensive. I can imagine playing it if I was like really short on ways to get things back and had something like a Wingmantle Chaplain, but uh, I, it's, it's never come to that. I'm going to uh, wrap this up here. Um, thank you so much, everyone, for uh, tuning in and for all the questions. I will be back uh, one week from now for the next episode, and I will decide in a few days um, whether I feel comfortable enough with the format as a whole to uh, start uh, putting up the poll about what I'll cover next, or whether I feel like I've been trapped in a rut too much and uh, need to talk about something in particular. That's where I'm at. Um, thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Speed.